Do take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 1. On the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, the Commonwealth of the United Kingdom comes to a complete standstill. At least that's a theory. The government said that's what we should do. And generally speaking, that is what is increasingly happening again. When I was a, a boy, it happened almost it almost happened as a matter of course. You would be walking along the street at that time and everybody would stop in the street and there would be silence. Cars would stop. And uh, for two minutes it was then, it's now a minute, people would remember the fallen in the Great War. It started with the Great War, then it became the First and the Second World War, and then now today we remember all those who fall in times of war. That little event that happens every year is marked by the use of certain bits of poetry. For example, at any services where there is an act of memorial, invariably these words are said, age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. In the evening and in the morning we will remember them. When I was reading literature at school, we learned some of the poems written by some of the men in the trenches in the First World War, among them words by Wilfred Owen, perhaps some of the most compelling. He wrote the anthem for condemned youth, which begins with these words. What passing bells for those who die like cattle, only the monstrous anger of the guns, only the stuttering rifle's rapid rattle. It is good to remember the dead. It's good for a nation to remember those in its armed forces who have given their lives for its freedom. It is good to do that. And in this account that we read together this morning in 2 Samuel, we find David doing something similar. We find him doing something which really translates over into a national and political scene rather than what we might consider immediately as a religious scene. And in this great lament that David writes in verses 17 to the end of the chapter, we find that is the focus of his remembrance. It begins and ends with a reference to the glory of Israel at the beginning and to the weapons of war of Israel at the end. And the key phrase is this phrase that's repeated, how the mighty have fallen how the mighty have fallen. Because the theme of the entire chapter is about the fallen of Israel. That is, these great people who had lost their lives in this war against the Philistines. And we find David grieving the fallen. We find him honoring the fallen. And we find him remembering the fallen. We find him grieving the fallen. That will come as a great surprise as we go into the passage together. The scene is set for us in the opening verses. Two things are juxtaposed with each other. There is the death of Saul and there is the account of David striking down the Amalekites. For as we come into the story as it's recorded here, we have to remind ourselves that at this point, David and his men know nothing of what has happened a hundred miles or so, perhaps a bit more, to the north in uh, Gilboa. He knows nothing of the implications of the defeat of Israel by the Philistines. 
He doesn't know that at this stage there is no kingdom in Israel. There is no king in Israel. There is no cabinet in Israel. Israel's armies have been annihilated or scattered. People were fleeing Israeli, Israeli cities. Philistines were occupying Israeli territory. Everything has turned around and he knows nothing. He knows nothing of the death of Saul or the death of Jonathan. He knows nothing of Saul's visit to the witch of Endor to, be, to receive guidance. He knows nothing about the fact that many lie fallen in Israel on that day. What David does know is that he himself has just won a stunning victory against the enemies of Israel, the Amalekites. What he does know is that those Amalekites who had taken away his captive, his wife, his wife and the wives of his men and, and children and all of their goods has been routed, that enemy has been routed, and they've retrieved every one of those family members. Not one person has been hurt or injured or killed in the, in the action, and they've retrieved all of their stuff plus all of the other stuff that the Amalekites had, and they've won an enormous victory that day over the enemies of Israel. So when we find David in the beginning of this chapter, what we need to put, use our imaginations, we need to put ourselves in his shoes and discover here is a man who's absolutely full of the joys of life. He's full of the victory. His men are full of the victory that they've achieved. And the fact that they've not only retrieved their own people back safely, but they've re retrieved all of this plunder that they've been given. They're wealthy men so wealthy that they've been able to share with the leaders of Judah some of that wealth as a token of their good standing. When suddenly, into that kind of situation, they have this man, this man who's bedraggled with mud on his head, with torn clothes, who stumbles into camp, showing all the signs of having been on a journey, but also all the signs of mourning. He stumbles into the camp, it's taken him three days to get there. Looking the worse for wear, he bows to David and outpours this story. He tells how Jonathan is dead and Saul is dead and many in Israel are dead and that the Philistines have been triumphant over, over Israel. And there to prove it, he hands to David the crown, the crown of Israel and the armlet, the golden armlet of King Saul, the evidences, the insignia of office of the king of Israel. The king is dead. Israel is defeated. And in a moment, you see, everything in David's life has turned around. Now, why is this story in the Bible? The story is in the Bible first because it happened, and it is the first account of the death of Saul that was delivered to David. This is how David hears about the death of Saul. Secondly, it explains to the people of Israel how it is that David, Saul's rival, comes into possession of Saul's crown and armlet, these signs of office. In other words, God uses this, as we'll see, a rather self-serving Amalekite, he uses this man to deliver the kingdom into David's hands so that nobody in Israel will be able to say that David had any part to play in the death of Saul 
or the death of Jonathan, who was the rightful heir to the throne. It's very important politically that this story is in the Bible. Very important for David's kingship that this story is in the Bible. It's very important for the unfolding of events in these early chapters of 2 Samuel that this story is in the Bible. And we know the impact on David, we're told, immediately from rejoicing he goes to grieving, tearing his clothes in grief as was the custom, pouring out his grief with all of his men as we shall see. And I just want to pause here because John Calvin, when he's preaching on this text, back in Geneva in the 17th century, says to his congregation at this point, do you see how quickly in your life things can just change? You come to church and you're full of the joys of spring and life is going well for you and you're happy as the, the day is long and, and you feel that your tail is wagging like a little puppy that's all joyful about everything that's going on in your life and then suddenly something will intrude itself into your life that reverses your mood, that changes the way you're looking at life from joy to sorrow, from optimism to pessimism, from laughter to tears. And why do these things happen in our lives? Why is it that moments, high moments of great joy, high moments of great pleasure in life, very often have included into them, worked into them as it were, disappointments and frustrations and fears or worries or anxieties? Why do these things happen in our lives? No sooner, says Calvin, do joys enter our lives than there are a thousand annoyances and distresses to sap it all away. Why is that? Well, Calvin says one reason for that is so that we don't get too comfortable when things are going well. One reason is that we don't get our hearts tied up with the pleasures and the joys of life. I think you really have to know in your own experience what pleasure is what joy is, what real love is, for you to understand that any of those pleasures, any of those joys, any of that love can so very easily turn into an idolatry of the heart. It can take your heart and it can replace even the most lovely thing, even the most right thing can replace the affections that you have for the things of God and your anticipation of heaven and glory. What Calvin says in his sermon, and I should just have read you his sermon because it's pretty good in this point. He's not always good, but, you know, occasionally he comes up with it. Uh, and if he works hard enough, he'll, he'll get better. But, but on this point, what he says is you should always have your heart ready for those changes, those shifts, those reversals of fortune. Have your heart ready so that you're not only ready to praise God in the good days, but you know what to do. You're ready to know what to do when there's a reversal of fortunes. Well, the bad news comes to David, and David took hold of his clothes, we read in verses 11 and 12, tore them, and so did the men who were with him, and they mourned, and they wept, and they fasted until evening uh, for Saul and Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord, and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. I want you to notice that phrase, the people of the Lord, that is, the people of Yahweh, the people of the Lord God of Israel. In other words, what David sees as he hears this news is not only that people he knew were dead. Remember that. He knew Saul. He lived in Saul's household. Saul had been his father-in-law. 
Saul had actually at one time been a promoter of David's career. Whatever else had happened since then, there were good days that David could remember as he thought back on his relationship with Saul. But also Jonathan, Jonathan who was his loyal friend. These men he knew were dead. He is grieving the way we grieve when we hear the news that someone is dead. Let's start off at that ground level. Let's not one for one minute imagine that these people in the Old Testament uh, or in the, in the Scriptures were different from we are in terms of their human feeling and their human emotions. They grieved over the loss of people that they knew. And David is doing that here. But of course he's doing more than that here. As he expresses his grief, and his grief is wholesome and is emotionally appropriate for the occasion, he also expresses his grief that it's the people of the Lord who are lying dead on the battlefield with Philistia that day. But they are the people that are on David's mind and heart. Now, isn't it an amazing thing that David should, should break down in grief at this moment over the news that Saul was dead? I mean, what do you do when you hear the news that somebody who's really been your rival at work has been fired? Or somebody's gone over their head and been given a job over their head? What, what do you feel? What's your instinctive feeling? Now, I know you're all spiritual people because you come to 10th. I'll just tell you what I feel. I would feel a certain measure of pleasure in a kind of understated British way, you know. I don't do understated British very well, by the way, you probably realize, but I could work on it and try and make it appear as if it was understated. But I would feel a degree of pleasure in thinking that the person who'd been my... I mean, I remember when the bully in my class, so there were several of them, but the really big bully in my class was bullied by somebody in another class. I walked away with a smile on my face that day, let me tell you. And you would imagine that David hearing that Saul who'd been hounding him, chasing him over field and dale for the last 15 years, making him an outlaw, chasing him down, throwing spears at him, you would think that when David heard that Saul was dead, he'd be rejoicing in that news. It really is a remarkable thing. A remarkable testimony to the heart of David that he does not hold a grudge against Saul. It is remarkable. Here in these early chapters of 2 Samuel especially, we're going to get an insight into the heart of David, and many of the insights we get are going to remind us of someone else who doesn't hold grudges, someone else whose heart was open even to those who were assaulting him and abusing him verbally and were, were doing him ill, and who could even, as he's hanging on the cross, say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't understand the implications of what they're doing at this moment. We see that reflected a little bit in David in these early chapters of 2 Samuel. It's all, going to go, it's all going to go the wrong way at the end. But in these early chapters, we're going to see David reflecting Jesus. And here in this grief that he shows, he reflects Jesus. Grieving the fallen. Secondly, he, we find him honoring the fallen. Bad news travels fast, and often the bearer of that bad news has an angle. And this bearer of bad news had an angle because he figured that the bad news would be good news to David. And nothing would have surprised this man more than David's reaction. Now, if you were reading carefully the story this morning as, as it was being read to us and paying attention, uh, uh, I think you would have noticed that there's a bit of a disjunction between this story and the story we've been told in chapter 31 of 1 Samuel. 
Uh, 1 Samuel tells us the narrator's view of how Saul died. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 1, we have an Amalekite telling a different story. It's nearly the same story, by the way. There are more points of agreement than disagreement, but there's one vital point of disagreement. And that is that the Amalekite says that he found Saul. Saul was nearly dead. Saul asked him to kill him. And in the end, the Amalekite did the right thing and mercy killed Saul there on the battlefield. That's not what it said in the original story. Now, scholars have a problem with this. And, and I just ask a number of questions. Are we, are we to believe that an intelligent narrator is going to allow a blatant contradiction to happen in chapters that are adjacent to one another in the text? Because that's what they are. I mean, 31, it comes before 1. In, in the book of Samuel, there are no chapter divisions in the Hebrew, so the story of the death of Saul in one bit is immediately followed by this story here by the Amalekite. Are we to think that the narrator who's writing this doesn't see the contradiction involved there? Or are we to assume that some editor who goes over the story and rearranges things, that the editor hasn't noticed that there is a blinding contradiction in the story? Or are we to imagine that some proofreader somewhere missed the blindingly obvious mistake and allowed this error to occur in what is to become the Holy Book of Israel? Well, no, of course not. The narrator has told us what has happened, and the Amalekite tells David what he thinks David wants to hear. He's got this crown. He's got this armlet. He wants to give them to David. He's heard that David is the chief rival of Saul. Everybody else is dead who could possibly take charge of Israel. He brings them to David, and he says, here you are. And he's hoping for what? He's hoping for a big fat check. Well, they didn't have big fat checks there, but the equivalent of a big fat check. He's hoping that he will be given some elevation within the nation. He's hoping that he will be rewarded. But what does David do? Well, if you look at verse 13, David, after he's grieved, for a day and a night he comes and he cross-questions the man. He asks the man a number of questions. He says to him, where do you come from? Now, he knows he's a Malachite. The man says he's an Amalekite. But he says he's the son of a sojourner. That is, his father was a resident alien in Saul's realm. He had been living in Israel. He'd possibly been born in Israel, though he was an Amalekite. But certainly he'd been living in Israel and his, his father lived there. Now what does that mean and why does David want to ascertain this? He wants to ascertain the fact that this man knows what he has done. You see... If he's a foreigner and he's never lived, I mean, this is, this is I, I can no longer, you see, claim to the policeman when I go through a red light that, uh, well, I didn't know what red lights were. You know, nobody told me when I came to America a red light meant I had to stop the car if there's nothing there. You know, that was always going to be my excuse. You can tell from my foreign accent that I'm foreign and I don't know the rules here. I can't, com I can't, I can't make that excuse anymore. I've lost that possibility. See, I've been here long enough now that they can say, how long have you been in this country? And do you hold a... Pennsylvania driver's license? Yes, I do. Well, that means you know this stuff. You know that you can't go through red lights. And what David is doing to this man here is this. So you've been living in Israel, have you? You know the law in Israel. You know that the king is the Lord's anointed. You know the king of Israel is hands off. Hands off the Lord's anointed. He's under the authority of God. God and God alone has the right to kill the king of Israel. God and God alone has the fate of the king of Israel in his hands. 
And David had demonstrated this himself, having had Saul's life in his hands twice in the narrative so far, he has refused to kill the Lord's anointed because he recognizes the place of God's king. David's, by the way, not stupid. He's going to become the king one day, and he doesn't want any old Amalekite thinking that he can come and strike a sword into the Lord's anointed because it's against the law of Israel. So what David is doing is he's drawing this man's attention to the fact that what he's done is verboten. It's not allowed. It's against the law of God. David, in other words, is showing here not only the kind of grief that's extraordinary, but justice that's extraordinary. The Amalekites were the enemies of God. That's one level. But here's an Amalekite who actually has lived in Israel and knows the law of God and the laws of Israel. And here's a man who, in spite of what he has known, has deliberately gone against those laws in order to get in with the new king. And so the Amalekite is put to death. Here is the king's justice. David is signaling. He is signaling to the people. Remember, Israel is divide, going to be divided over the death of Saul between those who are loyal to the former king and those who are loyal to the new king. And David is signaling to all Israel that even in his death, the death of Saul and his family, David will honor the dead. He will not allow anybody to come along and say that they were responsible for killing him. Remember, David doesn't know what you know. He doesn't know the narrative of chapter 31 of 1 Samuel. He doesn't know the actual events. He can only go on the, on the basis of what the man says. And the man has said, publicly confessed, to having killed Saul. So David acts out of honor for the dead when in justice he has the man killed. And this, by the way, becomes a bit of a, a theme as we go into 2 Samuel because everything, nearly everything David does in these early chapters is designed to heal the breach between the house of Saul and the house of David and to heal, to bring healing to the people of God, to the people of Israel. And sometimes justice is required to bring healing where there are deep scars between peoples within nations, but also among men and women generally. So he's grieving the fallen, and he's honoring the fallen, and then thirdly, he rem he's remembering the fallen. He writes this lament. Now, the book of Samuel is bracketed by poetry. There's Hannah's poetry at the beginning of 1 Samuel, and then there's poetry, nearly two chapters of it, at the end of the book of Samuel, the end of 2 Samuel. And here in the transition point, in the middle, there's poetry as well. And we have the record of this poet, this poet, uh, poem here. I want you to notice a couple of things about the poem. It's not a psalm of David. It isn't a spiritual song that is in the book of Psalms. It's, it's not one of those. This is a war poem. This is something that is to be rehearsed, repeated, and used by all the people of Judah, especially by those who are in the army. It's to be written in the book of Jasher, which apparently is some kind of uh, national, national songbook. Not, not a spiritual songbook, but a national songbook. It's to be learned by all the people of Israel. And in this psalm, he remembers the fallen. It's a formal expression of grief. He puts into words, this is what a poet does, he, he puts into words, he captures for us the images that we need to express the grief we feel. Very often, 
when we're in the, in the grip of grief, we can't say. We, we can't get out what we're feeling. We are feeling too much to say what we're feeling. I don't know if you've ever been in that position where it doesn't mean to be the loss of a loved one. It can be the loss of a, a, a relationship that breaks down, that comes to an end, or the loss of a career, or whatever it may be. But you, you, you are caught up in such deep grief. It, it affects you so fundamentally to the core of your being that, that you cannot speak about this. I, mean, I, I remember there was a period, my father died suddenly, and, and there was a period of some years where I couldn't tell anybody without breaking down the story of how he died. I just couldn't say it. Could not say the words. And grief sometimes gets you like that. And this is where our poets help us. Our songwriters help us. They put things into words that we cannot put into words ourselves. And that's what David does here. He puts into our words a lament that we can go back to again and again and again. And people have come back to this. This passage, for example, has been one that people who have had to deal with suicide, for example, have come back to again and again, remembering the real cause of Saul's death, to see both the horror of it, but also a way through it, handling of the grief of it. The reason that such laments are Recorded, this lament is recorded in the Bible, is that there's no magic switch that switches off grief. It will last, it may last an entire lifetime. But there are ways to handle grief, and sometimes lament is the way that we handle grief. Now, David wrote this lament for all Israel. He intended it to be taught to the people, that they should learn its lines and sing the song in a memorial for the fallen of Israel. It was meant by David to be a unifying thing, to unify this divided nation. And he focuses on three things in the, in the poem. He focuses on the, on the glory of the Lord. Your glory, Israel, is slain. I, I, I noted that at the beginning and the end, he refers to the glory of Israel and the, war, the weapons of Israel. He's referring to people, of course. The same people. He's thinking of Saul, but especially Jonathan at the beginning. And at the end, he's thinking of Saul and the other people who had died, but especially Jonathan, who had fallen in Israel. The people were the weapons of Israel. And the people were the glory of Israel. Because the people were the people of God. And that's why he says, for example, tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Eshkelon. He's thinking to himself, what are the ungodly going to do with the story of Saul's death and Israel's defeat? What are the ungodly going to make of the fact that these people who are the people of the Lord are lying strewn on a hilltop somewhere in northern Israel? Well, they're going to make news of it. CNN from Philistia is going to be down there recording the sights. They're going to be showing the images of deserted cities that are now being occupied by the Philistines. The people back in Philistia are going to be singing songs of, of joy over what has been happening to Israel. David says this is going to diminish the glory of God, the glory of the Lord. He is passionate, you see, about the people of God. He sees the people of God, the church of his day, in a terrible state. He sees that the, the winds, as it were, are, are, are against the, the people of God in his day. And he's 
grieving for this and he's putting this into the mouths of, the, of Israel, the ability to look at this reality, to see this reality, to see it in its perspective. In a letter written on March the 9th, 1637, Samuel Rutherford wrote from his prison in Aberdeen to his friend Alexander Henderson about the state of things in Scotland and he said this, the wind is in Christ's face in Scotland these days. You ever been out in a gale? You, need, you really need to do this, by the way, on a hill in Scotland in the winter when the rain doesn't come down vertically, it doesn't even come horizontally, it actually comes up from below, it goes down and comes back again. It's so heavy. It's a, it's a remarkable experience. You need to be there with that rain pelting you in the face. You have to be there. You just don't get that stuff here. Because it just comes straight down here. It's so polite. But in Scotland it comes at you from every angle. And what Rutherford is saying is, the wind is in the face of Christ. Things are going against him. And you know things are going against the face of Christ here in the United States in these days. And we need to, be, we need to face that fact. And the glory of the Lord is at stake and we would be foolish. Not only foolish not to grieve over the loss of a loved one, but foolish not to grieve over the state of Lord's church. The honor of the Lord. And the memory of the fallen, that's another reason for writing the poem. He wants to express the grief he feels for the loss of Saul and of Jonathan, the spiritual integrity in the man. He's able to overcome himself and his own selfish feelings in order to, to recognize that he loves the Lord's cause and therefore, whatever else could be said about Saul, he focuses on what Saul did that was right and that he died fighting for Israel. You could say that there were all kinds of other things going on and there were, but he chooses at this moment, not to highlight those. Sometimes when you're giving a eulogy at a funeral, you have to say the good stuff and not mention the bad stuff. John Calvin, again, is quite helpful here. He says, you know, there isn't anybody so bad that you can't find something good to say about them. Because they were made in the image of God. I mean, Saul has thrown spears at him. But David says Saul was a good father. His sons would die by his side. And that's saying a lot. And David identifies that in the midst of things that were spiritually wrong in his life, and there were, common grace was also at work in Saul's life, and he celebrates that. We can do that. We can do that with some of these great figures in society who are repugnant in some areas of their life, repugnant in the way they live their lives, and yet, that's not all you can say about them. You can identify good things in them without saying that they're saved or, or going to heaven or any of that stuff because they may not be doing that. Spiritually, they may be far away, but we can say the truth David focuses on that for the sake of Israel at this time. And then the last reason he writes this little poem is because of the history of the time. In memory of the fallen, for the glory of the Lord, but also as a history of the time. He, because he wants to remind the people. This story is in the Bible because he wants to remind all Israel 
to remember why the disaster happened. You see, this, this Amalekite coming into the story at the beginning, you think, that's a bit random. Why, did, you know, why, why is he an Amalekite? Why does he come with this story? Why does he deliver the kingdom to David by giving him the crown? Why does that happen that way in the providence of God? And the answer of the book of Samuel, taken as a whole, is this. It was over the Amalekite issue that Saul lost the crown 15 to 20 years before. He'd refused to obey the Lord in the issue of destroying the Amalekites. He'd refused to do that, and it was on the basis of that that he lost the kingdom. We were reminded of that in the, on the penultimate life of Saul's night, of Saul's life, when Samuel speaks to Saul and reminds him, you lost the kingdom because you did not obey the Lord in the issue of the Amalekites. And so an Amalekite brings the crown to David, hands it to him, when in fact it was because the issue of the fact, the, the Amalekites was the issue over which Saul lost it 20 years before, effectively. David writes this lament so that people will not forget the issues surrounding that great disaster in Israel. He's, he's writing this song, by the way, he meant, doesn't even mention God in the song, but he writes this song so that Israel will remember that it was their own sin that got them a king like Saul in the first place. It was their own disobedience that landed them in this horrible situation, initially. And he's reminding them of that so that going forward, they might put away all of their attachments to their idealized view of what the future should be and trust in the Lord alone. Well, what do we take home from this? I, I think we take home from this a number of things. One, it's okay to grieve. Paul writing to the Thessalonians says, we grieve, not like the rest of humanity without hope, but we grieve, we grieve with hope. We grieve with hope. We grieve with hope. Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus, knowing that a few minutes later he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Don't you think Jesus weeps with you when you weep in grief over the loss of a loved one? Even though he knows that in his timing, in a couple of minutes, he's going to raise that loved one from the dead to everlasting glory. It's all right to grieve. One of the emphases of the poem is the separation. The separation of David, of Saul and Jonathan, not being separated in life and so on, and even dying together in death. That theme of separation comes up. We think of being separated from David was feeling the separation from Jonathan, but we think from our New Testament perspective that there is now no separation in Christ Jesus. That nothing can separate us from the love of God in him, and that, therefore nothing can ever ultimately separate us from those who love God that we know. And ultimately, I think the story reminds us that what happened to Saul and Jonathan happened because God said it would happen. Saul wasn't the Messiah. He was the anointed, but he wasn't the anointed. David is going to be the new king. David is going to be the anointed. But we're going to learn in this book that David, David isn't the anointed either. There's only one Messiah. And that's Messiah Jesus. But I think the last thing that this teaches us is this. 
that even on our worst day, when joy is turned to sorrow, laughter to tears, God is still in control. Father, we pray that you would take your word, write it on our hearts, and help it to work through to our emotions, and then work out into our lives for your greater glory. Amen.